welcome to Architecture Insights, the podcast series produced by the New South Wales Architects Registration Board. I'm your host, Di Snape. And this is episode three of the 2018 Summer Long Play Sydney Architecture Festival episodes. What is architecture? Today you're going to hear from Karen Stein, who delivered the World Architecture Day Global Oration, discussing what is architecture, who makes architecture, and what makes it meaningful. Karen Stein is an architectural advisor and executive director of the George Nelson Foundation. She was the editor-director of Fiden Press, before which senior managing editor of Architectural Record, and has been a member of the faculty of the Design Criticism Program at the School of Visual Arts in New York. She's the author of Aldo Rossi Architecture, 1991-1991. She's currently a member of the Board of Directors of the Architectural League of New York and the Chinati Foundation in Marfa, Texas, and served on the jury of the Pritzker Architecture Prize from 2003 through the 2012. In this World Architecture Day oration, uh, Karen Stein is introduced by her friend Wendy Lewin and was invited to provide, if you like, an appeal to the hearts and minds of people who use architecture rather than the people who design it. So let's hear from Karen Stein. Good morning, everyone. Karen is universally known for her substantial and sustained interest in exploring the convergent worlds of architecture and fine arts. Her advocacy as an educator, writer, commentator, and cultural custodian of the work of visionary 20th century artists, designers, and architects, together with her insistence on understanding the personal ways in which artists and architects apprehend their commissions and shape their work within the global history of ideas and strategies, cause for her to be with us today. Rather than applying some form of remorseless exfoliation to the critique of global practice, Karen prefers applying a more elegant form of intellectual scrutiny, notable for its lack of rhetoric and cant, which many would agree nowadays is increasingly uncommon, even novel. Karen Stein. <laughs> Thank you, Wendy Lewin. So it's a great pleasure and thrill for me to be uh, with you here in Sydney to participate in the Sydney Architecture Festival. Of course, even more so because we're in this illustrious building, a building that I, like so many from around the world, have admired from afar for decades. So to now finally be inside it and have a chance to experience it firsthand for the first time while addressing the subject of architecture, makes this truly a special occasion. So I'm here today to talk to you about architecture. And before I begin, I should make a confession. If you are expecting a series of pronouncements on contemporary architecture, you will be disappointed. I'm not here to present a unified theory of architecture, despite the rather grand title of oration, um, rather, I'm here to ask you to consider what we are talking about when we talk about architecture. So I'm not here to provide answers as much as I'm here to pose questions and hopefully, in the process, provoke you to consider architecture in a broader context. 
Now, I imagine the architects are in the audience are thinking, and probably rightly so, that they already consider architecture in a broad context. So before heading for the exit, I ask you for some forbearance, as my motive in the end is to elucidate the importance of what you do. So with all that said, let's begin. When I was invited to speak here today, it was explained to me that one of the goals of today's program is to take contemporary architecture out of the architect's studio, a studio much like, like the one shown here, and bring it to a wider audience. In other words, take it out of the hands of professionals and into the hearts and minds of people who use it, whether they are architects or not. And for me, the assignment represents what I've been trying to do my entire career, trying to help explain to anyone who's willing to listen why architecture matters. Despite having a background in architecture, I should t tell you that I am not, nor have I ever been, a practicing architect even though I've spent my career working among architects, writing about their buildings as a journalist, publishing books in my many years as an editorial director of Fiden Press, and evaluating their work for possible commissions or even awards. I'm not trying to claim that this is a picture of me on the Chrysler Building in New York, or that I'm in any way as daring as photographer Margaret Burke White is in this image. I'm using it as a metaphor of my relationship to the architecture profession, both on the inside and on the outside of it. If there's one narrative thread in the work I've done is that I see myself as a translator of sorts between the often hermetic world of architects and the engaged architecture enthusiast. I say hermetic because if you've ever been surrounded by a group of architects, you quickly find that they seem to speak a language all their own, even if it's seemingly in your mother tongue. Contemporary architects tend to talk about their buildings as if they are the physical manifestations of their thoughts and imag or imaginations. If you were merely to listen to architects, you might come to believe that great architecture hovers somewhere between a work of art and a philosophical theorem. And that's not wrong per se, it's just incomplete. The creative process is such that ideas a guiding idea can have incredible force. It can mobilize the many people necessary to realize any work of architecture, and it can guide in an incredibly wide, rate of wide array of decisions. But ideas, creative vision, is only one aspect of architecture. For us, the woman and man on the street, architecture is something more basic. It's where our life takes place. And it's on that most basic level that's, that it's worth focusing some attention. So it might make sense to start at the beginning, so to speak, by asking what seems like a rather simple or even dumb question. What exactly is architecture? It seems rather obvious, but is it really? This is a famous line from a treatise on architecture written by Roman architect and military engineer Vitruvius. It's the oldest written defini definition of architecture that we have from some 2,030 or more years ago. That's an old translation on the screen. And in today's English, it basically says, the ideal building has three elements. It is sturdy, useful, and beautiful. So this is something to keep in mind when we speculate on what architecture is and isn't. My guess is that some of you in your heads said no to at least one, if not more, of the images I just showed. After all, they're not 
the, the images I just showed are not all of buildings. They aren't all buildings, that's absolutely true, but are they architecture? Putting aside the rather limiting notion that architecture can be defined as a building and just a building, let's review the group again and in more detail this time. As many of you know, this is the Gateway Arch in St. Louis, Missouri, designed by the Finnish-American architect Eero Saarinen in 1947 and built in the late 60s. It's tempting to consider it as a giant sculpture, even if it came from the imagination of an architect and not an artist. But it's not just an object or a huge object. It has an interior. You can actually take a tram ride inside the arch all the way to the top. It's so cramped in there that this rather dated looking drawing is probably the clearest way of showing how that tram works. At the top, there's a viewing chamber of, source, of sorts, a place to admire the incredible panorama. It's the gateway arch after all, so meant to be a gateway to the west. So overall, the St. Louis Arch is a symbol, a monument, a journey, and a space. This is a gateway or portal of a different sort at the Tippett Rise Arts Center in Fishtail, Montana. It's one of several such interventions on a 12,000 acre cattle ranch and was actually cast by pouring concrete into pre-rebar uh, reinforced holes dug into the landscape. This is the work of Ensemble Studio and the studio's principals, Spanish architects Anton Garcia Abril and Devora Mesa. It's also, one might say, a monument to equilibrium. Here's another one of Ensemble Studio's interventions on the ranch, also made on the site. It's a dramatic form, obviously, but it also serves a purpose as a venue for concerts. The architects have called this, in the portal I just showed before, structures of the landscape. They say that they like that they look natural, like found objects, but at the same time, you have the impression that they are artificial. This is the Mylau Viaduct, a cabled state bridge in southern France, and it was designed by the office of Norman Foster in collaboration with the structural engineer Michel Virlogot. This is part of the redevelopment of the botanical gardens of Culacan, Mexico, an ongoing project by Mexico City pro architect Tatiana Bilbao. As sculptural and expressive as the architectural interventions are, they are subsumed into the larger landscape. In other words, she's saying, architecture doesn't have to fully dominate to be, do, doesn't have to totally dominate to be fully present. This is a project called Full Circle, designed by architects Julia Jamrazic and Corny Kempster in Buffalo in upstate New York. It's in a low-income neighborhood where refugees from Syria, Somalia, Bhutan, and elsewhere have recently arrived and been making their homes. It was commissioned by an arts organization. But when you really look at it and think about what it is, you can't just say, oh, that's a toy, made it to look like art, and leave it at that. In a neighborhood that has little public space, it takes a conventional plaything, the linear swing set, and transforms it not just into a social statement, but also into an act of cultural diplomacy. With the swings arranged in a circle instead of a straight line, it forces interaction. Swinging becomes communal, not just parallel play. As the architects have pointed out, it questions the relationships between people and space. So it delineates space, it has a function, people enter and exit it. 
Aren't these all qualities of architecture? This is a ski jump designed by Zaha Hadid in Innsbruck, Austria. It's both a piece of equipment for ski jumping, obviously, and also for enjoying the incredible view. And it's clearly intended as a monument in the landscape. This is a view of two former artillery sheds located on what was once an army base in the far west Texas town of Marfa. These former artillery sheds, now this is one of a, a set of two, were converted by the artist Donald Judd into a space to permanently install 100 milled aluminum boxes of his design. These two buildings are part of a campus of buildings made into a museum that Judd established called the Chinati Foundation. Overall, these two buildings, the sculpture inside and the surrounding landscape, these three aspects fused together are one work of art. That's how Judd saw it. You couldn't have the 100 boxes without the two buildings, and you couldn't have the play of light and shadow without the incredible West Texas landscape. Yet, there's a piece of this that is just architecture, and Judd, not an architect by the way, is the one who designed the roof and the windows, remaking those former artillery sheds as he needed them to function and look as venues for his sculpture. So what does all of this mean about the definition of architecture? We've seen that architecture can be a lot of things. A building, yes, of course, but also architecture is a bridge, a landscape, an object, a monument, and a form of social interaction. Architecture can be heroic and humble. It can engage and transport people, literally or figuratively. And we've also seen that architecture isn't made only by architects. And why does it matter who actually makes architecture? In as much as I'm arguing for a broad definition of architecture, I'm in favor of a broader understanding of how architecture comes to life and what that requires in terms of the talents and the variety of people and the range of expertise and the responsibilities of the people who commission it. But more on that later. Before we tackle the who of architecture, let's stay with the what of architecture a bit longer. So are we closer to a simple definition of what architecture is? Let's look at what architecture is, and perhaps isn't, in another way by taking a look at this project. Frank Gehry designed the offices of Chaya Day, an advertising agency in Venice, California, in the late 1980s, early 1990s. And he invited his friend, the artist Klaus Oldenburg, to collaborate on the project. Oldenburg's contribution is the giant binoculars positioned in the center of the complex. Frank Gehry designed what's next to it. From the street, the Oldenburg looks, predictably, like a giant piece of sculpture. Inside, it's actually part of the working complex. There are meeting rooms inside those binoculars roundish meeting rooms, but meeting rooms nonetheless. Looking at this, you might ask the reasonable question of where does the architecture in, end and the art begin? Does it matter? So this project calls into question quite directly the definition of architecture. At the time the project was being completed, I remember Frank Gehry pondering this very question. He reported, perhaps jokingly, perhaps not, that he and Oldenburg decided that in working on this project together, they came to the conclusion that the difference between architecture and art is that architecture has bathrooms and art 
doesn't. Now, that might have been a good definition between their distinct aspects of the project, as there are rooms in the binoculars, but no bathrooms. But is this the grand definition, the foolproof standard, that we want to live by? Architecture is anything with a bathroom. So by way of answering that question, I show you this building. This is a chapel in Germany by Swiss architect Peter Zumthor. From afar, it looks like a giant stone marker in the landscape. Up close, it's a small concrete structure that was built by local farmers on the edge of a field. Part of the pleasure in visiting this jewel of a building is the long walk across the field to that small, strange door. When you are inside the chapel, you can see the concrete was cast around the trunks of trees that were slowly burned. The treetops were arranged to create a small oculus at the top, the only source of light when the triangular door is closed. So overall, this is an expression of the place, literally, as the concrete is made from local sand and gravel, and the pine trees come from the area, and it was built by the community. And, as you might have guessed, this is a one-room building. So there's one single room, and there's no bathroom. But it's most definitely architecture. And just to reinforce that there are many kinds of buildings that fulfill their function and vital functions and are just one room, here's a different kind of example. A library that was built on top of an old disused water tank in a northern village, in a village in northern Kenya. The design is by Stanley Sadowitz. So let's agree that the bathroom as a standard for saying something is or isn't architecture is out. And even one room can be architecture. So what about something else, another way to capture what is and isn't architecture? What about this as a standard? Does architecture necessitate permanence? Does that mean that temporary structures aren't architecture? There are many who would disagree, myself included. The need to house refugees, whether from wars or natural disasters, has prompted a range of innovative solutions from architects, students, and NGOs around the world, much in the form of temporary shelter. There are many inspiring examples of this. What I'm showing here is the work of a human, humanitarian organization at the U Norwegian University of Science and Technology in collaboration with Tin Tegnetsu Architects, which conceived the pro project in response to the need for dormitories for Karen refugee children on the Thai-Burmese uh, border. It's a group of six prefabricated huts made of woven bamboo that was harvested locally. The foundations are made of old tires, which raise the buildings off the ground. And here is an early design for emergency relief that goes back a few decades and hails from much closer to here. It's the design of architect Sean Godsell, who is based in Melbourne. Called Future Shack, it's meant to be mass-produced and, and assembled within 24 hours. Overall, it was an idea well ahead of its time, based on current demands for emergency shelter. Now, Future Shack incorporates old shipping containers. Like the previous example, the need for shading and air circulation is taken into account. And another particular innovation here are the telescoping feet, which allow the building to be located without a foundation or even on, on, or on uneven ground. As the ex these examples show us, architecture doesn't have to be permanent to be profound. 
These temporary buildings also raise another question. What are suitable materials for architecture? As I mentioned, Godsell's design here utilizes old shipping containers. Are there materials that make something architecture or not? Can we say that certain materials just aren't architectural or aren't up to the demands or dignity of architecture? As Sean Godsell demonstrated with shipping containers, other architects have demonstrated with a range of materials, mud, bamboo, earth. Just because we consider such materials messy or unstable, or even at first glance beneath the dignity of architecture, doesn't mean they don't contain con incredible potential for architecture, particularly because of their easy availability and abundance. One of the great accomplishments of architecture is that in the right hands, it can make us see something we think we know, but in an entirely new way. And that includes how we see materials, particularly materials we may have dismissed for some reason or another. This building includes a material that surprised many when it started showing up, mostly in temporary buildings, and that's paper tubes. Following the earthquake in Christchurch, New Zealand in 2011, which destroyed a 19th century stone cathedral, Japanese architect Shigeru Ban designed this church, largely out of paper tubes. Needless to say, this project earned the nickname Cardboard Cathedral. Ban and his colleagues have done extensive testing on the structural properties and general resilience of these paper tubes and have used this data to convince building code officials. So paper, something we think of as flimsy, can actually be used as part of the structure of a building. Here's a school in Burkina Faso designed by Francis Carré. As Carré has explained of the building's fabrication, the walls are made from locally harvested stone, which when first extracted from the earth, can be easily cut and shaped into bricks. When the stone is left exposed to the atmosphere above ground, it begins to harden. The material functions really well as a wall system for classrooms because of its thermal mass capabilities. And all of this, working in combination with wind-catching towers and roof overhangs, lowers the temperature inside the classrooms. The building is wrapped in a system of, in a system of wooden screens made of eucalyptus tree, a kind of tree hallway for the students to gather in. Gather in in the shade before and after class. Now the fact that this project is largely made for things just on and around the site is the entire reason it is even possible. And this leads to another important theme in understanding what architecture is, or rather what great architecture is. It's about capturing potential. What Carré, who was born in this area, brought to the project is an innate understanding of how people in this village live, what the local resources are, and just as importantly, what they aren't, and how to best activate the community to get local people involved in bringing the project to life. What Carey's work in Burkina Faso makes clear is that being an architect is a sense of responsibility to a set of values and to a group of people. If you think that architecture if you think of architecture just as form making, then you're missing the point. And if you think that architects are somewhat interchangeable, young or old, established or emerging, 
local or foreign, whatever categories you choose to put them in, and that the specific experience of each architect is irrelevant and only the so-called style of their work is what differentiates them, then that too is a total misunderstanding of the potential for architecture. So if we return to our overriding question of what architecture is, we can now say that an understanding of materiality as a definition of architecture also needs to be broad. Materials, substances that at first glance might not need to be considered might not be considered suitable for making buildings for people to live in can in the right way actually be made to do so. Now, I've included this project partly because I just love this image of Aldo Rossi's floating theater being pulled around Venice by a tugboat, but also because it answers a question that might have occurred to some of you as I have been testing and, in effect, discarding definitions of what architecture is. Perhaps along the way you've thought, well, at least architecture stays in place. It is firmly rooted to the ground. With this as one example, I would say, not necessarily. The other thing that this project shows is that a contemporary building can find a comfortable place, look incredibly at home, surrounded by centuries of architectural history, and yet, from another per perspective, look almost like a visitor from another planet. So just to review some of the suppositions we've had to put aside in considering a definition of architecture. Size doesn't matter. Not having a bathroom doesn't stop a st structure from being architecture. Being temporary doesn't start, stop a structure from being architecture. Being made of seemingly flimsy materials doesn't stop something from being architecture. Being transient doesn't stop something from being architecture. If all of this is true, could we at least agree that architecture requires four walls and a roof? Could we at least boil the definition of architecture down to the idea it provides complete enclosure? Here is a project that is actually quite difficult to capture in photographs for reasons I will explain. And you're probably not surprised by this at this point. It refutes the question I just posed, whether or not something has to have four walls and a roof to be architecture. This image and the few images that follow show a promenade, a procession through a series of outside spaces designed by Portuguese architect Alvaro Siza on the campus of the Vitra Furniture Company located in Val am Rhein, Germany. It's a path with various stations. It suggests a succession of episodes and views, views of architecture and nature. The entire project suggests, even necessitates, a slowing down and a focusing of attention. It implies that architecture is not just a thing. Architecture is also an experience or a way of experiencing life around us. Caesar's project seems almost negligible. What did he do, after all? And looking at this, you see a bunch of stones, some pavement, paving, and that's pretty much it. But ultimately, it is so much more. Here, Siza is showing us that in the right hands, architecture has the capacity to make you see and appreciate the seemingly mundane. Yes, architecture serves its users by providing shelter, a place to work, a place to live. In that regard, it is function-based. But is this project, 
and the Zumthor Chapel, and so much of the other work I've shown already clearly demonstrate, architecture is also and always an expression of values. How something is made can express values. How it is used expresses values. How it looks expresses values, expresses choices, and ultimately values. These next images reinforce the idea of architecture not just as an object, but also as a tool for a broader experience and understanding of the world. These structures are located along a 117-kilometer religious pilgrimage route across Jalisco, Mexico. Walking the trail is an act of faith and devotion, a ritual that has been going on for centuries. And recently, a series of architects from around the world uh, designed stations or objects at key points along the pilgrimage route. You could call them architectural acts of faith. This one is a lookout point designed by a firm called HHF. There's a spiral route to the top of the structure. In this way, the architects invite a process of physical ascension to give a broader view, a greater understanding. This is another lookout point on the pilgrimage route. This one was designed by Alejandro Aravena of Santiago, Chile, and his firm Elemental. Like Alvaro Siza's promenade on the Vitra campus and Donald Judd's buildings in Marfa, Texas, this pilgrimage route shows us that we can't confine architecture to a box or any other shape. Architecture is also the space in between, the space beyond. Does architecture depend on the significance or specificity of the function it supports? Not necessarily. Waiting is one of those acts that can take a variety of forms. You don't really need a building to wait, but sometimes it helps, practically or otherwise. The powers that be of a small Austrian village invited a group of architects from around the world to design a series of bus stops. The one on the right is by Japanese architect Su Fujimoto, and the one on the left by Chilean architect Smilian Radic. I read somewhere that the architects were invited to design these bus stops in exchange for a long holiday in the area. I'm not sure if that's true, but it's a good story, and it gets at something that is key to architecture. You need to know a place to design for it. Really know a place. How the sun shines, how the wind blows, how the people live, how the economy survives, what resources are available and what resources aren't. Each of the invited architects from abroad was teamed with a local office for the express purpose of learning and, importantly, engaging the skills of local craftspeople in the area so that these skills could be incorporated in the designs in some modest way. This is intended as an economic stimulus program. In the end, you could say that the best definition of architecture is that architecture serves people. And again, just to make sure you don't shut down the possibilities of what that means, I'd like to show you some examples of buildings that can serve people without actually being made for people. This structure is by Herzog and Demeron, and it sits at the edge of various train tracks near the central station in Basel, Switzerland. It looks like a big copper box, and essentially it is. Inside the six-story building is mostly electronic equipment to control signals related to the trains, tracks, and station. In effect, it's a giant piece of equipment 
and the architects embrace that fact in their design. The building is effectively wrapped in copper coiling. The whole point of the project is to make a giant safe for the equipment inside, but also a cage that protects the contents from outside electromagnetic interference. The copper coiling does this, and it also provides a tantalizing visual expression. The brilliant idea of this project is the stature the architects gave to it. They turned on its head the rather facile presumption that since it's a service building, a building that holds equipment, it needs to be hidden, demonstrating instead that because of its prominent site and functional importance, it is also something to be seen and even admired. Here again, Herzog and Demeron took what is often a throwaway in terms of a design opportunity and turned it into a spatial and structural exploration. This is a parking garage they designed in Miami, Florida. Obviously, it's not a typical parking garage. And if you had any doubt about that, it's become such a landmark in Miami, partly for the spectacular views it provides and partly for the raw, muscular appeal of the space itself, that people are renting the space for weddings and other events. So just think about that for a minute. A parking garage that is so attractive that people want to have their wedding in it. What I've tried to make clear today by proposing possible definitions of architecture and then effectively rejecting them is that architecture is not easily defined or confined. Architecture is not just a thing. In fact, architecture is not, in my opinion, an inanimate object. Architecture contains life, so by its very nature displays signs of life. Now, architecture has duties to perform, functions to fulfill for its users, but also broader responsibilities to a client, to a budget, to the environment, to culture, and to the human spirit. Inherent in any built work are choices about what's important and what's not, and inherent in those choices are our values what is worth standing up for or even fighting for. To define architecture is to define a value system. To me, asking why architecture matters is like asking why government matters. Both, perform, both prof- provide a structure to our lives, allow us to live our lives independently and together. Like the laws of the land, architecture is a social contract. Historical civilizations are often perceived or evaluated based on their surviving works of architecture, even if what survives can be somewhat random and uneven. I don't have to tell you that for decades, from places as far away from the United States, contemporary architecture in Australia has been largely understood by one building, the one that we are in. And not to take anything away from an individual masterpiece, but whether you are a person a building, a place, or a culture, to be reduced to one thing, albeit a great thing, is to be misunderstood. In fact, Australia has a rich culture of contemporary architecture, one that I'm excited to be learning more about in my time here. And Australia has a broad array of accomplished architects whose work stands alongside the best work being done around the world. The Sydney Opera House is certainly an important example of architecture's transformation 
transformative power and is deservedly an icon around the world. But it is also, to those who know the details, an important lesson about the challenges of building something that pushes the envelope of what is or seems possible from a technical standpoint. And it's also, importantly, a testament to the risks and rewards of international architecture competitions. As someone who has been involved in many architect selection processes around the world, both as an advisor to the client and as a member of the jury, it's also worth noting that how an architect is chosen for commission is also an expression of a value system. Around the world, big public, pro big public projects or projects that are seeking a higher profile are often the subject of competitions. Some of the most famous buildings in the world, the Centre Pompidou in Paris, for example, like this building, have chosen their architect through open competitions. But it's important to know that the competition process itself can have an inherent momentum all its own, and that inherent momentum may have little to do with architecture itself. What people often misunderstand is that competition schemes are at best a mirage. Because of the limited time given to produce entries combined with virtually no, ex no access to the client, competition schemes are often glorious, attention-getting speculations on the part of architects, and yet they are received and treated as certainties. Contemporary architecture is often understood as a series of individual landmarks, and again, it's true that individual buildings can transform a place and become instant landmarks, not to mention postage stamps, like the building we are in, or the Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao, which in its own way was conceived to be just that, following in the footsteps of this building. But in the age of Instagram, it's easy to forget that there is a difference between the photogenic and something worthy of close scrutiny. We need to remember there is a difference between something that is attention-getting and something that is worth remembering. Typically, something worth remembering has an experience embedded within it. What happened there, how it made you feel, what you observed, what you learned. And creating a setting for a satisfying or even profound experience takes a certain type of engagement with the place and the people the building is meant to serve. So now, having talked for some time about the what of architecture, let's spend a few minutes on who makes architecture. So just a few thoughts on who makes architecture and why that, in and of itself, is an important subject. As this cartoon implies, architecture has, for decades, suffered from a horrible affliction. That affliction is an overconfidence in the lone genius theory. Now, to be clear, individual genius absolutely exists. There are extraordinary individual talents in architecture, as in many fields. And in addition, there are exceptional talents who, for some reason or other, don't get the opportunities and attention they deserve. Some of these talents work individually, and some in close collaboration with others. But the affliction I'm speaking of is the idea, the false idea, that if you behave like you think a genius behaves, overly self-assured, disdainful of the opinions of others, controlling whatever your caricature may be, that if you perform like one, you are one. 
that somehow by playing the role of genius, you have talent because singularity, persona, is what matters above all. Why is the architecture profession so caught up in the idea of the heroic genius? Well, we all like to blame someone, so here's an easy target. This is the actor Gary Cooper and the portrayal of fictional architect Howard Rourke in the movie version of Anne Rand's book, The Fountainhead. Of course, it's not really Cooper's fault, though he does portray a symbol of the larger problem. In the movie, he plays a man of such extreme principle, if you want to call it that, that he's able to defend his right to dynamite a building because it's not up to his standards. He is a stand-in for Anne Rand's view of the exceptional individual, an individual who is above other men and women and thus should shape the world to his will. My problem with that is that who gets to decide which of the stubborn hotheads belong on the exceptional list and who is just plain self-absorbed and nutty? The thing about this stereotype is that it's damaged the public perception of architects. It's damaged architects in terms of how they comport themselves and how they measure their own success. And it's damaged prospective clients who believe that if they can find out the name of the genius of the moment and lure her or him to do their project, they are guaranteed that ultimate prize, a masterpiece. Choosing an architect is not like buying a hot stock. The client may bear the financial burden, but a client, a good client, the kind of client who understands how meaningful architecture is truly made, is not a passive consumer. Like the architect, a client has responsibilities, and those responsibilities are to engage, to understand, to question. But outside of the movies... Who, in real life, makes architecture? Throughout history, the short answer to that question has largely been white men. Here is one of the most famous and accomplished architects of the 20th century, Frank Lloyd Wright, surrounded by members of his staff. And this is probably the kind of image that still comes to mind when you imagine an architect, even though the image itself is probably 70 years old. Of course, this is Le Corbusier in his signature glasses. And just looking at the photo, you can feel his swagger and self-assurance. Like Frank Lloyd Wright, he's one of the most significant architects of the 20th century. And during his lifetime, he certainly cultivated a star persona. In architecture, as in other disciplines, there's the cult of personalities. Stars become brands, and Le Corbusier and Frank Lloyd Wright are among the twoest architectural brands of the 20th century. Yes, they are both responsible for some incredible buildings, but also, if we're being truly honest, for some fairly mediocre ones as well. Since, as the architects in this audience well know, the actual making of architecture is dependent on such a vast array of participants, a good or even great architect is not always enough. Our obsession with personalities is like our obsession with architectural icons. Understandable, but also incredibly limiting, and in some ways damaging to a broader understanding of what architecture requires. And part of what architecture requires is a professional community that is representative of the diversity of our world. Now, I'm not familiar with the statistics here in Australia, but in the U.S., where I'm from, the profession has a long way to go in this regard. 
while roughly half of architecture students in the US today are women, only a third of licensed architects are women. And if you look at management positions in architectural firms, that drops to, at best, a sixth. And although African Americans made up 13% of the total US population at the last census, only 2% of licensed architects in America are black. What do these inequities mean? An organization of architects and activists based in New York called Who Builds Your Architecture is just one example of the many different kinds of groups around the world addressing these issues. In their case, it's through data visualization. In other words, creating visual representations of global supply chains so that we can truly understand the implications of the who builds your architecture question in terms of labor and jobs. A work of architecture is the result of a long process, and each step has repercussions. We, as concerned citizens, need to know who makes our buildings and why. We need to know about these things because we need to know if the choices that are made represent what we care about, what we believe, how we see ourselves. Many of us care enough to learn the ingredients in our food, so why wouldn't we also want to know what goes into making the places we live and work? In fact, I would argue that the process of making architecture, particularly public art architecture, begins even before an architect puts pen to paper or more often these days, hand to mouse or stylus to screen. The process begins early when a client selects an architect. Is it by way of a competition or an interview? Is the architect ad adequately compensated for the work it takes to actually compete for the job? How the frame is set in the selection process goes a long way to shaping the ultimate outcome. So these processes that we think of as preliminary or tangential to the making of architecture are, in fact, crucial to it. If we agree that architecture reflects our values, then all the steps that go into making it do as well. To say that labor connected to the making of architecture is irrelevant to the architecture itself, or that ethical and political issues are tangential to the quality of what is built, is to misunderstand the reach of architecture's many long tentacles. Architects as a general group are nomads. They like to travel, to see things, to experience things. They are also, and importantly, at heart, optimists, because they believe architecture, thoughtful architecture, can improve daily life. Many of the architects who I've met during my time in Sydney are firmly rooted here in Australia and have developed their sensitivity to materials and the environment because of their experiences in this unique landscape. But, like architects in New York or elsewhere, they are not defined by a single place. Rather, they are defined by their interests, interests that have no borders. They see architecture as some part of something bigger. The environment, social fabric, civic culture, and the course of history. In this view, an architect is not only a master form maker, she is, above all, an instigator inciting a series of examinations, conversations, choices, and conclusions. For her, architecture is the art of connection, connection between the past and the present, the real and the imagined, the static and the active, the practical and the poetical, and perhaps most of all, between who we are and who we strive to be. 
So again, I ask, what is architecture? For those of you who came today hoping only for answers, once more, I apologize. I believe in questions. And there's a reason to that. It's not that I don't have a theory of what architecture is, but ultimately, my theory of architecture is just this very thing. What questions does it ask, and what questions does it answer? In his book called In Praise of Architecture, a book that reads largely as a love letter to his profession, the great Italian designer, Gio Ponti, called architecture the marriage of skill and imagination. That's as good a definition as any, because it doesn't set limits. The greatest thing an architect can do is open our eyes to the world, to ourselves, and to one another. So, what is architecture, and why should we care? It's what we live in, and often what we leave behind. It speaks to our most basic needs, and represents our ideals. Thank you very much.